0: So, Tristan and I have been part of the M4C family now for about eight months, and that just feels kind of crazy to me, partially because it feels like we just started, but also because it feels like it's been five years. Does anyone else feel that? Like the last few months have gone on forever and ever, but in a good way, of course. No, we've been loving being here at the M4C with the M4C family. And we're excited to continue work and grow with his people. But during this time of transition, oh, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. You guys didn't rehearse it, apparently, because it's not everywhere. No, during this whole new transition in our life, there's one thing I noticed that when we first moved into our apartment in Boise and when we first moved into our rental house here is that there's a game that we play. And I don't think we're the only ones who play it, because it is the who-is-my-neighbor game. And this game is played pretty simply, actually. It starts by looking at those that we live near and making assumptions. What could possibly go wrong, right? No. This game is played by looking at those people and, and trying to understand who they are from a distance, of course. There's the older gentleman that seems to be there watching you at your most embarrassing moments in your backyard. Or there's the house across the street that seems to exchange occupants more than you have had house guests in an entire year. Anyone? Yeah? There's the neighbor that seems to be kind of a recluse that maybe will look your way if you say hi enough, but then retreats back inside. Or of course, there is the neighbor who thinks they're covertly throwing trash and pet droppings over the property, even though everyone does. You see, we could all continue this list, but I think you get my point. We observe these people, but sometimes we're hesitant to actually know them. What we don't see is the humanity that sometimes is hidden behind our assumptions. I know for me, I'm tempted to play the who's my neighbor game because it helps me create these excuses to not know my neighbors. I let these assumptions become reasons to avoid these characters that are actually more fictional than real. I play this game because in my mind it keeps me from having the obligation To reach out and get to know my neighbors. Like they have to fit some kind of profile before I can let them be my neighbor. Now, maybe you relate. Or maybe I've just revealed how terrible of a person I am. Either way, I promise there's a point to this. See, today we're looking at Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is asked the question, Who is my neighbor? And we're going to see Jesus' response in the parable of the good Samaritan. So let's open our Bibles to Luke 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, "Do this and you will live." Okay. Now there are a few things we need to understand about this text before we even dive in to the parable. First, it says that this man's question was, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Which we normally relate to salvation and life after death. And though that's not a bad way of interpreting it, if we leave it there, we miss out on so much of this Message. We need to read in the historical context. You see, this word "eternal" meant so much more than "never-ending." If we walked around Jesus' time telling people that eternal life meant never-ending life after you die, we'd get some weird looks. And this isn't because people didn't believe that life with God was eternal; they just didn't limit life with God to be after you die. This word "eternal" carried more than a time element but a quality element as well. Meaning that eternal life that God brings is not just never-ending, but it's a fullness of life as well. It pictures life as it was always meant to be lived. How do I live life the way God designed it now? That's the question that this man is asking. And this was a common question in Jesus' time, and not the only time he's been asked it either. This question was common for teachers and religious leaders to be asked because, not unlike us, we all are trying to figure out how to live life the way God designed it. How to live life to the best of our ability. How to live life to the fullest, now and forever. The question that leads us to this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is a question that I think we can all relate to. It's not just about salvation or life after death. This question is all about how to live for our lives now. How to live life the way God designed it. Now, the second thing we need to look at, of course, is how Jesus answers the man. And he answers by asking two questions, two follow-up questions. He asks, what does the law say? What does scripture say about that question? which I think should be a pretty good standard for anyone who follows God. Before we have people around us answer our questions, we should look to God's answer first. I don't know about you, that just seems like a smart idea to me. But then the second question that he follows it up with kind of sounds odd, because he asks the man how he interprets the law as well. This question seems kind of odd because it almost sounds like he's encouraging him to interpret the law according to his own opinion. But similar to how there are different uh, views and opinions on doctrine and theology today, there were debates on how the law was to be interpreted and lived out in Jesus' time. Some viewed the law through the lens of obedience, saying that God gave the law because he wanted us to learn to submit to his authority. And then there was the side saying that you view the law through the lens of love, which we'll see later that both this man and Jesus land on that side of it, saying that God gave us the law because he... Loves us. And the law is how we are supposed to live, the way we're always meant to live. We see that this man's answer to Jesus is the same as Jesus's when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, which is, of course, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Both Jesus and this teacher land on the side of love when it comes to looking at the scripture. Now, when Jesus answers this man's question, and then the man responds saying, well, this is this is how I view the law. It's love. Jesus' response is quite profound. How do I live life the way it was always meant to be? Well, how do you interpret the law? It's love. You look at the law through love, and Jesus says, yep, do that and you'll live. That's exactly how it is. That's how you live eternal life. Jesus' answer to how to to have an, an eternal and full life is found in the love for God and love for one's neighbor. Jesus says that the answer to how one should view and obey God's commands is love. To experience life the way it was intended to be lived is through the love of God and love of people. And based on the next part of our text, I don't think that's the answer that this man was expecting. Continuing, it says this, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I don't know if you guys just caught it, but this guy wants to play the who is my neighbor game. Here is this guy trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus turns that trap around and gets this guy cornered, and so to save face, he asks another question. another debated topic, the definition of neighbor. This topic was debated because the traditional teaching was that it was talking about your fellow Jew, saying that your neighbor was uh, your uh, Israeli neighbor. But there were teachers in Jesus' time, they were considered kind of out there in their thinking. They said that the definition of neighbor could be expanded to Gentiles, and specifically Romans. But a lot of people didn't want to accept that. Now, it's pretty clear at this point, this guy's not asking a follow-up question to make sure he's living life the way it was always meant to be. This guy's getting a bit defensive, and he's asking a question to feel justified in being selective in his choices of who his neighbors are, being selective in who he shows love. He's using a topic that is debated to cover his rebellion against what is clear. Instead of accepting the call to love, he's giving in to the temptation to strictly define who he's supposed to love. And this is where we must caution ourselves. I know for me personally, this is where I find it most easy to mock and ridicule these religious leaders and teachers who try to protect their selfish ways from Jesus, all while I've done the same thing. I need to humbly remember that I've tried to justify my evil actions against God and people to avoid Jesus's. Correction. I know I've personally brought up deep and theological and doctrinal debates that I've considered and studied to sometimes hide areas that I know I haven't spent enough time doing or following. This man is avoiding the clear command by participating in the debate of semantics. It's similar to when we were told not to touch our siblings. Did we listen? Sure. We followed the words okay, fine, I won't touch them. I will find any other way to drive them crazy, though. I'm sure we have all at least heard, if not said it ourselves, the, but I'm not touching you! All while we are still driving them crazy, when the original intent of the command was so that you don't drive your siblings crazy. I've got a few of my siblings here, actually. We've played this game enough in our lives. The original intent of the command was to not drive your sibling crazy at all. Not to test your creativity in how you drive your siblings crazy. And it's the same with this command from God. The heart of this command is love. Not harm, neighbor. Not saying, yeah, but that person's weird. That person drives me a little crazy. If I spend another minute hearing from this person, I don't know what I will do, Lord. So can I just change the definition a little bit? Again, maybe you're just thinking, man, this guy's got problems. See, just being difficult doesn't mean that God is challenging our ability to exclude them from that love. Instead, he's challenging us to go above and beyond remembering the love that he has shown us as well. Whether we want to admit it or not, we've all played the who is my neighbor game with more than just those that we live near. And I'm not saying this to judge anyone or point fingers because I'm in the same boat. I'm saying this so that we can reach a place where we can humbly look at Jesus' reply to this question, who is my neighbor? And ultimately, how do I live life the way God intended it? See, it's at this point that Jesus agrees to play the who is my neighbor game. And the answer gets right at the heart of issues at this man's time, and issues that we are facing today as well. Let's read the parable. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and it's at this point, you guys don't see it in your Bibles, but there's a dun 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 in there in the Greek. It's pretty cool. Just kidding. Sorry. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for every extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So again, Jesus' answer to this man is not what he expected. Normally a teacher would say, well, your fellow Jew is your neighbor, but not a Roman, or something along those lines. But Jesus portrays this nameless, faceless man. We don't know anything about him. He's been beaten, robbed, and he is dying on the side of the road. We don't know his name, his social status, beliefs, or anything about him. I don't think Jesus gets the who's my neighbor game. The whole point is that we're supposed to know as much about these people from a distance, of course, so that we can choose how we treat them. Maybe I'm missing something. Let's continue to look at this. Now, the next part seems to be the most talked about section of the scripture, the three people that pass this dying man. Jesus could have literally started this story by saying, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan encountered a dying man, or even better, why'd the Samaritan cross the road? I don't know about you, that just seems like a missed opportunity. Now many sermons spend time railing against the priest and the Levite for walking by this man, and praise the Samaritan for coming to his aid. They especially spend time on the shock value of the Samaritan being the one who's being more neighborly, the one living life the way it was meant to be because there was definite hatred between Jews and Samaritans in this time. The whole reason Jesus places a Samaritan in the story is because a Samaritan would be the last person that a Jew would consider living life the way he intended it, the way God intended it. What we need to remember is that even though these characters are part of the story, They're not the point of the story. The point that Jesus is trying to make has nothing to do with ethnicity, positions, or status, and everything to do with character and posture towards others. Even though the protagonist, the main character of the story, is a Samaritan, we can easily replace him with any unlikely or scandalous character. What if Jesus is pointing out that people who show love and compassion in the world, even if they're unbelievers are living more godly lives than those who claim God is Lord but deny him by bickering, criticizing, and looking down their noses at those who are different. These people might not follow God or have faith in him, but they are acting more godly in those moments of love and compassion than those who try to represent God by false righteousness and piety. What seems to be Jesus' main point in this parable is that the one who is living life the way God intended it is the one who had compassion religious superiority. This word compassion pictures this feeling deep inside, literally feeling it in your guts. This is being absolutely moved by the hurt and need of another. In fact, a fun fact about this word is that it's only used in the Gospels and only in relation to Christ or the Christ-like characters in his parables and how he feels towards the lost, the hurt, and the broken. According to Jesus, what is different, and the outcast is the one living life to the fullest through compassion in this parable. The challenge that Jesus seems to be presenting here is simply this. To live life the way God designed it to be lived is to love the people he designed. Especially the ones we're hesitant to know. Behind what we see about these people or think we see is a person that God designed and cherishes and calls us to look at them through his eyes instead of our own. Based off of this, we can argue that loving people the way God calls us to is how we also love God the way he commands it. Now, after Jesus shocks this man with the Samaritan being the good guy in the story, He closes his storybook, and he looks at this man, going back to the question, who is my neighbor? And he asks, which of those three that passed by this nameless, faceless man that we saw was the neighbor? The man responds, saying that was the one who showed the mystery man mercy, which is basically taking action on the compassion and love that you feel. And Jesus' response to this man is very similar to his first response. Yep, go do that. Not very deep, not very profound. He says, the word says it, so why aren't you living it? If it says, love your neighbor, then why are there neighbors that still need love? That seems to be Jesus' painting here. Jesus makes the point that it's found and lived throughout loving those around us. See, Jesus takes the who's my neighbor game, and he's changed the rules, which is kind of unfair, but it's fine. He makes it clear that our focus is misplaced. It's not about looking for the prime option of neighbor to love, but it's about loving whoever we are near. Jesus makes the one who needs love this mystery person, which is very intentional because he is inviting us to come closer and to show them his kind of love, regardless of race, gender, political opinion, or whatever else that might keep us from treating them as a person instead of an uncomfortable inconvenience. All of this points back to the original question, how do I live life the way God intended it? How do I live life the way he designed it to be lived? If our hearts do not burn with compassion for those who are hurt, lost, and mistreated, then we are not living life the way God intended it, and our hearts do not beat in tune with his. Jesus points out that life, the way it was intended to be lived by God, is lived out with compassion towards all people, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, and especially no matter how different they are from us. Do you think that message is relevant for today? In the book, People to Be Loved, this is described as love without a background check. As you can imagine, I underline that pretty vigorously. Because it's something that I know I need to learn. Or sometimes I want to learn as much about a person as I can before I choose to dive in and get to know them. But that's not the heart of Christ. You see, that book was written specifically in how we as the Christian community treat the gay community. But the core point of the book can be applied to anyone. The author makes the point of posing the question, what if we stopped viewing people as a problem? And started viewing them as people to be loved the way God views them. I want to quote the brilliant theologian, Horton the Elephant. A person is a person no matter how small, but I'd like to push that a bit further. A person is a person no matter their religion, their personality, their lifestyle, their mistakes, their background, their looks, their sins. A person is a person no matter what. And I know I need to remember that. If they are loved by the God of all creation, then how much more as, for us as his followers should we love them as well? At the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stated it this way. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus makes it clear that if we show love only to those that make us comfortable, only to those that are like us, that, uh, that we kind of appreciate more, that we are no different than any selfish person out there. But when we love people who look, act and think differently than we do, even if we disagree with them or don't even respect them. We're living life the way God intended it, because the love of God transcends all differences. Jesus' answer to the question of how do we live life the way God intended it is this, that we need to be people who act with compassionate love to everyone, not just who we want. The question that we need to ask is not, who is my neighbor, but rather, who am I neighboring? Kind of making it a verb. I was homeschooled, so I can make those changes. It's fine. If we spend our time on this earth asking what kind of people we're supposed to love, we're being disobedient to the command, love your neighbor. Because the answer is simple, whoever you are near. This does not mean that we have to go out and shove Jesus in their face whenever we see them, but this means that we be the love of God in their life. This means that we love people on God's terms and not our own. This means that we use what God has given us to bless those around us. This means that we use our experiences and our story to help guide those who are in need of a little direction. See, are we willing to put aside our differences with those around us to remember that Jesus permanently did the same between God and us? Who is my neighbor? Maybe it's the young couple just starting out in their marriage and they're facing rough waters. Maybe it's the single mom who's a waitress trying to just make ends meet. Maybe it's the widower down the road who is suffering from loneliness. See, the point is that God, we don't get to pick who God gives us as neighbors. But we get to choose how we treat them. So the next time we play, who is my neighbor? Let's remember that the rules have changed. The goal is eagerly looking for someone for us to be the presence of Christ in their lives. Who is my neighbor? It's whoever God puts us near. As followers of God, let's live out our life to the fullest by loving those that God places near. That we are neighboring. Can we do that, church? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the grace that you give, and we thank you for the gift of your son, that you removed the difference that we had with you, and instead, you invite us to draw closer. And I pray you help us have that heart, a heart of restoration and a heart of love, a heart that's eager to show people that they are loved, that they matter. God, this year has been pretty crazy. And sometimes it can feel like we're facing things alone. Sometimes we're not sure what to do. And I just pray that you help us be sure of one thing, that your love is constant. And that you call us to show that love to others. We ask for the boldness to do so and the strength. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.